Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We've got another uh, book overview episode for you, and this week we're doing one that may be familiar, may not be familiar to a lot of our listeners. We're doing the book of Habakkuk, uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. And uh, I've always loved this book. I know you have too. Uh, mm-hmm. But but I will say Habakkuk is really trending up in terms of uh, interest. It's 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 definitely the book that if you're going to preach an obscure book from the Old Testament, this is the one that most people pick. Uh, we, you know, with with the exception of maybe Jonah, Habakkuk uh-huh. is the go-to minor prophet. You never when people are sitting around in preaching team meetings and you're saying, "Okay, so we've done four New Testament books in a row. We got to do an Old Testament book, but we don't want to do Genesis because you know, the kids in high school are going to be in our senior uh, ministry by the time we get done. And you you want to do something that is off the beaten path. It just seems like Habakkuk is the one that always gets picked right now. Uh-huh. It's, it's become a very popular book. And there's really good reason for that. I think that's going to come out in the course of this episode is uh, Habakkuk is, is an easy book to preach for several reasons. It's an easy book to study for several reasons. And part of that is because of how important it is in the Christian life not just in the right. Old Testament, but in the Christian life itself. So I'm pretty excited to jump into Habakkuk. If you're having trouble finding it, head over to the table of contents. Um, I'm hoping that I spelled it right in the episode title of this. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and give us some background info on Habakkuk. Where are we when we start this book? Who is this guy? What should we know before we read the book? Uh, great question. Let's set it in its historical time because that impacts this dialogue that Habakkuk the prophet is going to have with God. And that's what this book primarily is, is a question and answer session with God. We know very little about Habakkuk himself, but this book is written and this experience that Habakkuk has with God happens about 640 BC. So about 640 years before Christ. So what's happening in this time period? Well, For the century or so before that, the Assyrian Empire, north of Israel, headquartered in what's modern-day Iraq, has been the ascendant empire. They were huge. They conquered all kinds of territories. They were very brutal, brutal people. They actually conquered the northern half of Israel in 722 B.C. So maybe a century before this is written. And so they deported a lot of the Israelites off to other areas. They tortured a lot of Israelites. They were just a very brutal ruler. Well, about the time this is happening, another empire in the north is coming up as the Assyrians are getting weaker. The Babylonian Empire, also headquartered in modern-day Iraq, is beginning to become ascendant. And so those two empires, the Assyrians... Babylonians will meet shortly after this book is written, and the Babylonians will defeat the Assyrians. So this book of Habakkuk and Israel at this time is kind of sandwiched in history between these two great brutal empires, Assyria before, Babylon after. Well, when you have this kind of brutality, Habakkuk the prophet looks around at the world, and he says, God, why do you let such horrible unjust, brutal things happen. And not only that, even in Israel itself, the Israelites are not living up to 
the law of Moses, they're not being just. In other words, their moral fiber is breaking down, kind of like the world's moral fiber. So that's what's happening. And so Habakkuk, the book, opens, and it's a dialogue with God. In chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk asks the God, how long will you let this injustice go on? In verse 5 of chapter 1, God answered, and he said, oh, I see what's going on, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to set things right. Well, of course, that's not the answer that Habakkuk wants. And in verse 12, he says, God, maybe I heard you wrong, but you know the Babylonians, they're even worse. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, God answers and said, yes, I know that's not the answer you wanted, but trust me because I'm going to deal with the Babylonians as well. And then chapter 3 is a prayer of Habakkuk. And we don't know how long a period of time is in between these chapters, but it it sure looks by chapter 3 that Habakkuk has spent some time thinking about God's answers to his questions. And chapter 3 is a beautiful prayer, and it summarizes how Habakkuk has come to terms with God's answer to his question. So that's Mm -hmm. a brief overview of the book. Uh, Cole, what would you jump in on there? One of the things I think is really intriguing about Habakkuk as a book and and the Minor Prophets in general, and uh, you've done a a series on the Minor Prophets, is just how little we know about these men who are writing these books. And so when when we say the Minor Prophets, we don't mean the less important prophets. We mean the shorter books of prophecy that are arrayed at the end of the Old Testament. So there's 12 books at the end of the Old Testament after Daniel, who are can constitute what we call the minor prophets. And in Habakkuk's case, he's never referred to in the Old Testament. We don't, we don't have any extra uh, outside of the book of Habakkuk information right. about him, except, and I, I want to bring this in here. This, now, I want to I put out a disclaimer. This is not from the inspired word of God. This is from the Apocrypha. But I always think this is a really interesting part of uh, the literature that would have been familiar but not inspired to the people of Israel. In the book, the apocryphal book, Bell and Dragon, which is typically affixed to the end of Daniel, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we see that as a a 13th chapter sometimes. It, it says this. This is this is from Bell and the Dragon. It's just one chapter long. It starts in verse 33. It says, Now there was in Judea a prophet called Habakkuk who made pottage and had broken bread in a bowl and was going into the field for to bring it to the reapers. But the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, Go, carry the dinner that you have into Babylon to Daniel, who is in the lion's den. Huh. And Habakkuk said, Lord, I've never seen Babylon, neither do I know where the den is. Then the angel of the Lord took him by the crown and it bare him by the hair of the head, it says, and through the vehemency of his spirit set him in Babylon over the den. And Habakkuk cried, saying, O Daniel, Daniel, take this dinner which God has sent you. And Daniel said, You have remembered me, O God, and neither have you forsaken them that seek you and love you. So Daniel arose and ate, and the angel of the Lord sent Habakkuk in his own place again immediately. Um... I don't know how I ended up with this King James version of this, uh, where he, where he, uh, the angel of the Lord in the vehemency of his spirit takes him by the crown of the head to the to the den uh, in Babylon. But uh, I do think this tells us something interesting about the prophet, even if we don't 
think that this is historically accurate, and that right. is just the the high esteem, character, honesty, availability before the Lord that someone like Habakkuk would have had in the mind of, of the Jews of the day. But then the content of the book shows us that even someone who is a prophet, even someone who is committed to the Lord and to the things that he wants to do in the lives of Israel still struggles with God when it comes to understanding his will and obeying it once he understands it. Because a lot of times we think of prophets as people who don't have any kind of doubt. They don't have any kind of uh, questioning as to what God's saying. I mean, you look at a guy like Isaiah or Ezekiel and God Mm -hmm. speaks to them and they turn right around and they speak to the people. In the case of Habakkuk, what we get is the internal life of the prophet. We don't actually get a, a version of Habakkuk's prophecy to the people. We get it by way of his prayer before God. So the book of Habakkuk is the internal life of the prophet, which is replete with wondering whether God's going to make good on his promises, asking God what his intentions are with the, the things that look like are not going the way of Israel. Um, I think it's really significant that in chapters in Jeremiah specifically, and then here in Habakkuk, we don't just get an oracle from the prophet to the people. We actually get a dialogue in the mind of the prophet, in the prayers of the prophet, back to God. That's a pretty unique thing in the Old Testament, but I think it's really significant to stop and observe that that's the kind of conversation he's having. I agree completely. It's like you have uh, a ringside seat to what's going on in Habakkuk's spirit, in his mind, in his prayer life with God. And you know, the way it starts in chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, and you won't save. Why do you make me see this iniquity, this injustice, and why do you idly look at wrong? Meaning, why do you watch this happen? And you know, that is a question that probably every Christian has asked. And so Habakkuk becomes, in a sense, every man, if you will, every Christian who's asking God, I don't understand why you're doing this. It's interesting that God uh, answers him, but he doesn't really give him the answer he wants, does he? No, he doesn't. And the interesting thing about Habakkuk is he's not even asking God for unrighteous things. If you think right. about it, it's not its not like he's saying, he's bringing a complaint before God and God's reply to him is, well, actually, you're asking for the wrong thing. Right. The, the thing that's so interesting about Habakkuk is he's asking for the right thing. He's, he's mm-hmm. asking for the exact kind of thing that God has told him to ask for, is that God would vindicate his people, that God would stand against the violent and the oppressor, all the kinds of things that, that uh, Habakkuk would have learned in prophecy school, he's asking God for. Right. These are the kinds of things that uh, God has told his people to ask. And when we get inside the mind of Habakkuk, he's asking God for righteous things, and that's the source of his disappointment, which I think is part of the relevance of Habakkuk is he's asking God for the kinds of things that we would ask for, for God to do the things that he promises to do in his word. And when we don't see those things panning out, we lament or we cry out or we remind God of his promises. We see this all through scripture. That's what Habakkuk is doing in this opening section is bringing a just cause before God to say, what are you doing? 
It's exactly right. And, you know, God does answer that. He just doesn't answer it in the way Habakkuk thinks. Basically, Habakkuk is saying, when will you do justice? I mean, he's saying, I assume you're going to do justice. I assume you won't look at wrong and let it go on indefinitely. And God says, oh, absolutely not, in verse 5 and following. He says, in fact, you know, all these evil people, boy, the Babylonians are going to come sweeping in here, and you talk about a brutal people. They are really going to put the hurt on all these people doing injustice. Now, that is one way to punish the people doing injustice. It just isn't the way that Habakkuk had in mind. Mm -hmm. And so I think Habakkuk reacts pretty strongly to that. You know, he basically says in verse 12, but wait a minute, are you not from everlasting, O Lord? In other words, he acknowledges God's greatness and God's sovereignty. He says, but, you know, you are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. In other words, what he's saying is, you know these Babylonians, the way you're going to punish this? Actually, this even makes it worse because the Babylonians are even worse than the people I was complaining about. Mm -hmm. And you know, we see that in life sometimes. It seems like uh, justice, if you will, gets done, but it doesn't get done in the way we have in mind. And it's like God uses imperfect things, in this case, evil things, to punish uh, other evil things. It's as though the world system itself, God uses very imperfect mechanisms to accomplish some of his purposes. It's not always supernatural. It's not always the book of Revelation, where Jesus comes riding in from heaven. That will certainly happen, but it doesn't seem to be the way God works in the world all the time. Mm-hmm. So God answers Habakkuk in the first chapter and says, actually, I'm, I'm doing something. Uh, if you would open your eyes and see it, it isn't what you expect, mm-hmm. but he's going to bring it about. And so then Habakkuk replies to him and says, wow, this is not what I was expecting at all. Uh, I'm not sure this is going to work out, but I'm just going to wait and see what happens. I'm going to wait for the reply of the Lord. How does God answer that second round of questions then? This second round has one of the most beautiful passages and profound passages, maybe in the whole Bible. But in chapter 2, God comes back and answers, and he says, first of all, I know you're impatient. He says this, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. In other words, write this in big letters, because it's going to happen. In verse 3, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. By the way, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and it sets this out as poetry. So a lot of this is very poetic in Hebrew, and it reads very, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's worth it to read this just for some of the beautiful phrases. But then God says this in his answer. He said, the righteous shall live by his faith. And here's how I understand that. It says, look, I know this seems slow. I know this isn't the way you expect it, but I'm going to punish the Babylonians too. And so what God is saying is, my righteous people will trust me in this. And that seems to be the big answer to God's question of, why are you letting this evil happen, and why haven't you already intervened? And then further question, why won't you intervene in the way I was expecting? And it seems like God says, the righteous will live by his faith or Mm -hmm. trust in me. And that's a a verse that's picked up later in the Bible. 
Yeah, that may be the most significant take from the book of Habakkuk for the rest of Scripture. Like we said earlier, nowhere else in the Old Testament is Habakkuk mentioned. Nowhere else is the book quoted in the Old Testament. But it is quoted two places in the New Testament that are really significant. In fact, probably two of the most significant places in the New Testament. The first time we see it is in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul is laying out the theme of the book of Romans, where he says, um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the righteousness of God, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And then he comes back around and he says, look, the basis of all of this is that the righteous live by faith. And what he does is he goes on in chapters 2 all the way up through chapter 11 to make this argument. The only way that sinful people can escape the punishment of sin is by being united with Christ through faith. It doesn't come by being a genetic physical child of Abraham. It doesn't come through the sign of circumcision. It doesn't come through keeping parts of the law. It doesn't come through um, birth order. None of that actually matters. What Mm -hmm. matters is being united with Christ in faith. That's the only way to die with him, to be raised with him, and to live a new life with Christ is the only way. And so instead of the righteous being defined by law observance, Paul says that righteousness comes by faith, faith from believing God's promises like Abraham did. And then uh, through living a life in the spirit, that way you fulfill the law of love. Paul makes the same argument in Galatians chapter 3. He's coming at it from a little bit different angle. He's, he's rebuking people here who are saying that you have to become a Jew in the dietary restrictions or in the outward signs of the law in order to be a Christian. And, and Paul says that is an anathema. That's a false gospel because the righteous people don't live by works. They don't live by sight. They don't live by any of those things. The righteous live by faith. And in both places... He's quoting Habakkuk. Now, it's interesting to get into the mind of Paul here and uh, think for a moment about what he's doing in those passages. Obviously, Habakkuk is not one of the most quoted or studied books of the Old Testament, but Paul knew his Bible, his Old Testament, so well that when he wants to make sense of what God is doing in Christ, he goes to this, what would have probably been a pretty obscure place in Scripture and says, actually, this is the same thing that God has been doing from the beginning of time until now. He said it in the book of Habakkuk. When Habakkuk was wondering how God was going to bring about justice for his people and salvation, in that context, he's talking about the Babylonians, but in, 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 the, same, in the same breath, he, say, he talks about righteousness coming by the faith of his people. Now, against the problem of sin and judgment, Paul remembers that passage, places it in a new argument, and says it's the same concept. The righteous live by faith. That's a great point. You know, you've got Paul talking about Abraham. I think Abraham, say, 2000 B.C., so a long time even before Habakkuk. And he says, you know, Abraham believed God or had faith in God or trusted God. That All those words mean exactly the same thing. He believed God, and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And that's that's something that you don't think about uh, immediately. You think, wow, even before the law of Moses, all the way back in the time of Abraham, it's always been faith. It's always been what? Uh, 
is the mechanism through which God imputes righteousness to us. And here's Habakkuk saying the same thing, or God saying to him, in a different circumstance. And then again, Paul picks it up when he's talking about salvation in the New Testament. And it's really interesting to see that thread, that it's always been about faith. Mm -hmm. It is about obedience, but obedience is a result of faith. Only through trusting God does righteousness come, whether you're Abraham or Moses or Habakkuk or the Apostle Paul. Right. So how does the book end for Habakkuk? Well, it's really, uh, first of all, on the way to chapter 3, as you go through chapter 2, you're going to see some quotes that you may know. For example, this is God again answering, saying, listen, I know that's not what you want to hear, but I'm going to punish the Babylonians as well. In other words, I will do justice, and you have to trust me that my righteous people will live by faith. And he goes on and he begins to speak a little bit about uh, Babylon. And in verse 14, you have this passage. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful little Mm -hmm. passage. And another one. uh, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You just really see this. And that's the last word of God. And it's just the majesty of God. He said, not only am I saying, trust me, but I am worthy of your trust. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. Then I imagine Habakkuk thinks about this for a while. I can't tell you that when chapter 2 ends and chapter 3 begins, I can't imagine there's not some time in there, but obviously from the text you can't tell that. But I suspect he really has to think about that a little bit, and he has to ponder what God has said. But he comes back, and he prays to God, and he says, he basically comes to God and says, you know, I've thought about what you said and I've decided I'm going to trust you, Mm. even if it's not what I want, even if it doesn't work out the way I want. He says, oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, oh, Lord, do I fear. And that's a typical uh, Hebrew formula for you are God and I am not, basically. He said, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And he goes on to talk about all the things that God has done. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and were afraid. The sun and moon stood still in their place. In other words, he exalts God. He starts with complaining, saying, hey, I I think you should be doing something. And then after this little dialogue, he comes back and he says, you are God and you are glorious, and I've decided to trust you. Mm -hmm. And he ends the chapter with maybe one of the most beautiful little phrases in verse 17 and 18. He says this, even though the fig tree should not bud, and even though there's no fruit on the vines, and the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no crops, even though the flock would be cut off from the fold and there would be no animals in the stalls, I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. If you think about the ending and the beginning of this book and that time in between, it's really a beautiful uh, journey because if you think about it, God doesn't ever really answer the question the way he wants to hear it. He simply says, I'm going to ask you a question, Habakkuk. Do you trust me? Mm-hmm. And this chapter three is a beautiful prayer that says basically, God, I trust you no matter what happens. Right. 
Yeah, there's some similarities at the end of this uh, this book, at least in chapter 3, to a couple of other places in the Old Testament. The one I'm thinking of most per- particularly is the book of Job. Uh, you know, in the in the arc of the book of Job is different. The plot is different. Um, Job is, is afflicted. He loses everything. He have this long sequence of talking with his friends and bringing accusations before Job, bringing accusations before God. And then in the end, God speaks from the whirlwind. The interesting thing in both cases is in neither place does God give a succinct explanation of what actually has happened. So in, in Job, for example, he doesn't say, he doesn't reveal what he has done, the deal that he's made with the accuser. With Satan, he doesn't talk about, well, I'm going to make this all better. That He doesn't say any of that. What he does is he questions Job, and he puts Job in the proper perspective. Right. He reminds Job of his character, of his attributes. He reminds Job of his station. And then Job puts his hand over his mouth and says, I will trust the Lord, basically. I will, yeah. uh, I will remain silent before the Lord. In Habakkuk, it's a different plot, but it's the exact same response. Habakkuk brings injustice before the Lord, and he says, what are you going to do about this? And God gives him an answer that he doesn't expect and that he probably didn't like. But he goes through the the pathway of sticking with it, praying, asking God, thinking about it, and in the end, he arrives at the conclusion, even if things don't pan out, so even if God doesn't immediately restore our crops, uh, even mm-hmm. if we don't triumph over our enemies, yet I will wait upon the Lord. I will be before the Lord in his temple. I will trust him uh, that he is wise, that his character is good. This is a groove or a pathway or, or a, a spiritual muscle memory that we need to pick up on and put into practice in our own lives that we see in the book of Habakkuk. The whether it's the Psalms, whether it's Job, whether it's the minor prophets like Habakkuk, the scriptures don't just impart information to us, especially when it comes Uh to things like suffering. In a book like this one, what might be even more important than the information is the way that God is teaching us about how we function spiritually. So Mm -hmm. when we come before God with a complaint, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do in the Christian life. But there is this track that he's, he lays out. There's this groove, or like I like to call it, muscle memory, that we can learn that, that instructs us in how to handle our complaints before God. So Habakkuk comes and brings a complaint. He uh, draws near to God. He talks to God. He remembers God's promises. And as God reminds him of his character and his perspective and where he is in relation to this, Habakkuk arrives at a place of trust that is not dependent on the outcome. That's the thing that's so important is there's a transcendent trust that Habakkuk has, that David has, that Job has, that Abraham has, that is based completely in the character of God and his promises and not on the immediate circumstances going the way that you think they should go. That is a piece of spiritual maturity to learn that pathway. We can do this in the Psalms. We can do it here. Uh, but it's something that we actually have to go through. It's not enough just to intellectually know it. We have to put ourselves in the situation where we're actually going through it. We're living it. And we're seeing God be faithful to what he's promised to do. 
you know, that's really good. You made a couple of great points there, but I agree with you. This is a groove that runs all through the Bible. If you want to look at Habakkuk a slightly different way, you could look at it as really stating the theodicy problem, and that is, why does a good God let bad things happen? Why does a powerful God let injustice go on? I mean, you could look at Habakkuk that way. I'm not sure that's what Habakkuk is actually saying, but if you did, here's the thing, is when you see that in Habakkuk, when you see it in Job, everywhere you see that question, God doesn't answer that question in the way we want it answered. And you pointed that out really well. Here with Habakkuk, he basically says, look at my greatness, my Mm -hmm. sovereignty and my power. Do you trust me to do what is right? And Habakkuk in chapter 3 begins to just exalt God. He said, I know how great you are. I know how splendid you are. And he says, no matter how this turns out, just what you said, regardless of the outcome, I trust you. And I think sometimes when we ask these questions, because we do, we don't need answers. And I would argue that there, it's unlikely that we would understand the answers if God gave them to us. We need perspective. And that's, as you pointed out, what he really gave Job. And here's the Christian perspective. Habakkuk knew that God was great, and that was enough for him. But in the New Testament, we know that God is great, but we also know that God is good. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not be condemned. And Paul in Romans, you see, at just the right moment, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know that God is great, and we know that God is good. And so then God turns it around and says, since you know those things, do you trust that mm-hmm. I will do what is right? And that's the, that's the lingering question to me in Habakkuk. It, it's almost as though Habakkuk and God at the end of this turn to you and me and say, what's your response going to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting that we don't actually find out how the end arrives for Habakkuk. We certainly know how the end arrives for the people of Israel, and it is not a good thing from a human perspective. So the complaints no. that he's that he's bringing and the things that he's seeing are accurate. And right. uh, from a human standpoint, from even a geopolitical standpoint, they are not good outcomes for the people of <laughs> no. Israel. Uh, That's right. But in the in the big plan of God, they are perfect and glorious outcomes. Right. Um, and so the the lesson we take away isn't divorced from history. We don't we don't want to take this book, make it all spiritual and ethereal, uh-huh. and say uh, our problems don't matter, and whatever happens to us doesn't matter as long as we have this uber-spiritual connection to God and and trust in His promises. That's not what this book is saying at all, and that's a dangerous way to interpret Scripture. The best way to interpret this is to say there is a spiritual lesson here that's tied to the historical reality that Habakkuk walked through. And that was that God was enough for him and showed him his character, even in very dissatisfying and uncomfortable circumstances. Even, you know, as, as, as the book of Hebrews says, he didn't get to see the promise of God. Habakkuk right. did not get to see God fulfill all the promises that he had made. And yet he was able to trust God. And, and that's, a, that's a lesson that is really pertinent wherever we are in our lives right now is that we have seen more of the promise than Habakkuk has. We have seen the Messiah. We have the gospel. We have the Bible. I mean, we have so much more than he did. 
but we won't get to see God put the world to right uh, before we die, unless he comes back before we die. Right. Uh, but we likely won't be able to see God deliver on all of that, and yet he is trustworthy. And uh, the, the lesson of Habakkuk for us is to learn that when we have those questions, it's, it's good for us to ask them. And it's also good for us to draw near to God and to talk to him, to remember the perspective that he's given us, to remember the promises he's given us, and to remember his character, to trust mm-hmm. him. I love this little book uh, for its history, and I, I think I wish I had known Habakkuk because there is a man of great faith knowing as little as he did to trust God. Had to paraphrase the end, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, I hope that we will be able to say something like this. God, even though things may not turn out the way we want, and even if you don't answer our prayers in the time that we want, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will take joy in the God of our salvation. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.